This is Going Negative, a podcast about solving climate change through carbon dioxide removal. Welcome to Going Negative, a podcast about carbon dioxide removal. I'm Tom Green, I'm your host, and today I am welcoming Eric Matzner to the podcast. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. And Eric, you are the founder of Project Vesta, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. But, but first, for our listeners, let's just, let's just get some basic information on the table about climate change and about carbon dioxide removal. So I read this week that carbon dioxide levels or CO2 levels in the atmosphere just hit something called 417 ppm. What, what does that mean? So that means uh, 417 parts per million. So the CO2, uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, for every million uh, molecules there, 417 of them are carbon dioxide. And that doesn't, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually the highest it's been in 23 million years. And the last time it was this high, sea levels were 50 to 80 feet higher. So humans did not exist. Uh, we do not know a world of this level of uh, parts per million of CO2. Okay, well, so there's, there's a lot there. So we've hit 417. You said we haven't, we haven't that level on this planet since 23 million years ago. So 23 million years ago, uh, obviously life on this planet was very different. Humans did not exist. Uh, and, and you said that sea levels were 50 to 80 feet higher than, than they are today? Yep, that's correct. So we used to think it was just, you know, we, the record has been ex- extended plus with better data plus we are putting out a record amount of CO2. Just as a baseline, pre-industrial levels are considered, uh, you know, before 17 or 1850, around 280 to 350 uh, parts per million. Got it. So, so let's go back to the sea level for, for a moment, though. So you said last time CO2 levels were this high, sea levels were 50 to 80 feet higher. So why are sea levels not that high? I'm sitting in San Francisco today. Why am I not underwater sitting in San Francisco at these current PPMs? Yeah, so uh, the CO2 acts, it's kind of like an oven. When you turn your dial up, it doesn't immediately go there. It takes, there's some lag time as the, the, the CO2 gas traps heat in the atmosphere, the greenhouse effect. And so it, CO2 lasts, can, can last for thousands of years in the atmosphere. So over time, as it builds up, it increases the heat. And then there's all these feedback mechanisms where like ice that was reflecting light melts. And then it, now the earth absorbs more heat and the earth gets hotter and hotter, further melting all the ice. And, you know, that we, we can see times when the earth, for example, is completely ice free, when, when parts per million of CO2 are very high, when there's been a lot of volcanic activity, and uh, you know that's relevant, for example, for Project Vesta, because uh, there's ways that the Earth has sucked that CO2 back in, and how it got to that uh, lower levels that allowed humanity to thrive. So you mentioned volcanic activity. So, so something that. 
Um, yeah, so the earth has its natural CO2 as uh, rock and other uh, materials are moved through magma and come out volcanic, uh, volcanic eruptions. So volcanoes are emitting CO2, but generally, uh, you know, there's been certain times it's caused extension, it's caused these things, but sometimes the exposure of that volcanic rock that's with the volcano coming up has the ability to break down and, and remove CO2 from the atmosphere. And that's actually a hint of what we do at Project Vesta. Okay, so, but to be clear, the climate has not warmed because of volcanoes. The climate, the climate is beginning to warm at least because of the carbon dioxide that humans have put into the atmosphere, right? Correct, yes. Uh, humans are emitting like a hundred times, up to a hundred times more CO2 than volcanoes are, and the corresponding weather weathering reaction could counteract. So yes, it's, it's clear that it is human-caused uh, climate change through the increase in CO2 and even methane emissions to a level not seen for 23 million years. Okay, got it. So don't blame the volcanoes quite yet. Yeah. So, uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the recent, more recent news. So, of course, as everyone knows, you know we're in the middle of a pandemic, COVID nineteen. There's been some news stories about, you know, of course, people are flying less, people are traveling less. You know, is that how much is that helping? Yeah, so uh, when the world was at the peak of what is the first shutdown, hopefully only, but uh, emissions went down uh, around 4%. And so it was, in some ways, it's inspiring that human activity can change the, you know, the, the climate, the, more like the weather and the, the current stuff. Like, for example, in uh, in. India, you could like see Tibet from one of these cities where there was so much uh, climate change, so much smog and pollution and particulate matter, which is different than CO2. But when the industry stopped, like the visual actually changed. Even LA, the smog was down dramatically. And so we, we did, and we've seen like where there's no tourists going to like with boats and uh, sunblock chemical runoff. We saw a resilience of nature uh, coming back, we saw animals invading cities because it's quiet and they're, you know, they're spreading out as they naturally would. And you can see uh, the, the beauty of, of nature's ability to, uh, you know, regrow and, and have some, re uh, you know, instant action if we were to change our activities. So, that, I mean, this sounds this sounds great. Right. So, you know, we, 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 are traveling less. And I think for a lot of people, you know, myself included, you know, I have, of course, haven't been flying since the pandemic started and I'm kind of getting used to that. You know, I quite like the idea of, of, you know, maybe doing more of my meetings in the future, you know, remotely rather than, rather than traveling. So, you know, if, if this is sort of a shift in the way that we all behave in our, you know, kind of in our day-to-day -day lives, you know, beyond, beyond the pandemic, does, does that mean, we're basically we're basically solving the problem. Like, is it, you know, are we? Is this going to be enough to counteract the effects of of all these carbon emissions that we've been doing over the years? Uh, I wish I could tell you uh, yes that just doing this is going to be enough. However, the even if the the predictions from this paper that came out basically said. While we're cutting at 4% now, uh, if this goes on the rest of the year, 
we will cut at 7%, which sounds pretty good. However, the Paris Agreement, which is, you know, this thing that 200, every country almost except America now, well, we're technically we're still in, we can discuss that as well. But the, to meet the goals that we've set to limit global warming to two degrees, we still need to cut by 7% each year from now until 2030 to get there. And so I actually think this is almost the opposite signal, which says no matter what we do in terms of activities, if individual stuff, you, me, if we all stay home, if we all change our habits, we still can't affect the, the majority of emissions. And that to me says we need systematic change. For example, 44.3% of the emissions are coming from power sources, and especially fossil fuels. And then uh, industrial CO2 release, which is pretty much done for free everywhere, is the other 22.4%. So that, uh, you know, is the reality is that we really need to look at the major contributors, the 10 comp, the 100 companies that are responsible for 70% or 80% of the total emissions, and we need to figure out how to limit their emissions or make right, them pay. Right. Right. So this, this, yeah, this sort of, it's, it's a, it's a helpful reminder that you know, even though we've stopped so much of our own individual activities, you know, we've only reduced emissions by 4% and it's only going to be 7% by the end of the year. And that's, that's not enough to, that's not enough to address the problem because we're still, we're still using our air conditioning. We're still generating, we're still watching TV, you know, we're still generating electricity. We're still, we're still buying, we're still doing all of the things that, that need to all of these emissions. So, so it's not enough. Yeah. And, and for example, like China's emissions already surpassed their previous emissions. They've bounced back and beyond to make up for lost time, I guess. Um, and so, you know, it really shows that uh, it's like part of the system is more, we need to demand the power plant that's burning coal is shutting down. And, and I'm not a pessimist. There's actually really good news on that front, which is, more coal companies are shutting down. The oil wells are coming down. Oil went so cheap that they 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 ran out of barrels to save it, and they were like paying people to take the oil because the the it shows that the supply is like greater than the thing, and a lot of these wells are not financially viable. Investors went into them looking for returns, and when they see that there's no real returns there because the energy is like actually too expensive in different ways. It, it, the whole system could come down. And we just had this first ever in the United States where a majority of the emissions were created by renewable energy and not by uh, fossil fuels, dirty fossil fuels like coal. The majority of the the uh, the um, power generated? Is that, yeah. Is that the, uh, yeah, the power, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the power generation was from non-polluting uh, or CO2 emitting sources. And that's, you know, think about this. If you have a pandemic and you can't go work in the factory and all, or in the, uh, you know, in the fire power plant, moving coal, a solar panel field that just sits there and generates energy. It doesn't need any real employees except for like maintenance, cleaning of them. It's much, they just run without deliveries coming in of more coal because they're renewable. The wind is blowing, the sun is shining, even if no one's around those technologies themselves are actually more resilient. And I think there's an argument to be made for a more resilient uh, future, like a nuclear power plant cannot just run on its own. It will probably eventually just melt down. Um, but a, a solar power plant, 
doesn't really just melt down. It, it, the panels we get covered with dust maybe, but otherwise they can run in a, in a much more resilient way without potential catastrophic damage. No supply chain interruptions can stop, you know, the, the, the coal from being trucked or trained in. The sun is all over. The wind is already there. It's blowing. So those are the positive sides that I think from a risk perspective, it's even more, uh, you know, damning that we should use those. It's more of an imperative to use the clean energy. Renewable. Right. right. So, so we're talking about talking about systems change and talking about this shift to renewables. And there's this great recent news that in the U.S. It looks like renewables are just on the cusp of, of uh, being greater than coal in terms of the amount of electricity produced through through each. And um, we're also here to talk about carbon dioxide removal. And so that, that could be a good, good good way into that conversation is, is to ask you, well, if we need the systems change and if we need the the uh, economy and if we need power generation to switch over to renewables, if we also remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in this term of CDR, carbon dioxide removal, if, if we do that, doesn't that create sort of a moral hazard? Doesn't that mean that if we if we... If, if everybody knows that we're going to be removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, then there's less of a need to switch over to, to renewables. Yeah, I, I think the real hazard is this exact argument. The argument, the hazard is the moral hazard argument because it's clear that we're not going to uh, stop emitting tomorrow. It's also clear that even if we did stop 100% emissions tomorrow and went down to zero, we still will need to remove like about a trillion tons of CO2 by the end of the century. And this is not a theory. This is the what the models that the Paris Agreement works on is that we have to remove CO2 at some point in a large scale, somewhere from, they say, 400 uh, billion tons or gig 400 gigatons to like one point something trillion uh, realistically depending on the rate at which we keep emitting which right now is around 40 billion tons per year and you know that target for the 2030 is uh, we need to be down to like 20 uh, we need to basically like cut it in half 25 i think we can maybe have a chance of being okay at Got it. Okay. So, so what you're saying is essentially it's, it's both and. You know, we need to we need to shift to a system which is a lower carbon based economy, and at the same time we need to we need to recognise that shift is not happening quickly enough uh, to to solve this problem on its own, and that therefore carbon dioxide removal from the atmosphere is, is needed as well. Yes, carbon dioxide or CDR for short. So. It's definitely needed, and sometimes these models don't predict it until like the middle of the century. But there's really an imperative that we need to figure it out now. And there's this great uh, paper called Negative Emissions. Like, what role do they play in meeting the Paris Agreement? It's made by European Academy of Sciences. And it basically says, like, if we don't figure out now, because even if we don't need them for decades, these technologies take time to mature. And it says, if we don't figure out now how to remove the CO2 and work out all the kinks that we were, we are, and this quote is, you know, uh, basically leaving humanity, like damning humanity to like a warming world, like a, like a, a damn a, a much warmer planet with no means to uh, turn it back at that point yeah. when it's too late. Right. And, and this warmer planet, what, what, what does that look like? I mean, you know, some people sometimes say, well, two degrees, that doesn't sound too bad. I mean, you know, well, have you ever, all right, all right. 
Have you ever heard of a wet bulb, wet bulb temperature? Please enlighten our listeners. Yeah, well, this is one for your night climate nightmares, but this is a real thing that you will have you will hear about at some point. But basically, human bodies use uh, sweating to cool our bodies down. Um, when the when it's a human environment and at a certain temperature, there's no amount of sweating because the uh, water won't evaporate because it's so humid already that mm -hmm. uh, it's it's called this like wet bulb. And it's actually like if you put a, a bulb with a towel on it, like at what point does it remain wet? Yeah, we don't have to go into the archaicness of the of the the name, but basically it means that no matter how much you sweat, you will not be able to cool down. And basically, if you're outside for some amount of time, you are like I think it's like six hours in the sun, you're guaranteed dead, even in the shade. So it's like a really scary thing that potential areas of the world will be uninhabitable. And that's the name of this great book called uh, Great for Laying Out the Terribleness of Climate Change called The Uninhabitable Earth. And it looks at each temperature and each uh, degrees what that means for the future planet. And so in there, there's this stuff of climate nightmares, but it really helps you to visualize like what this looks like. Like how can we push forward with all these initiatives? Like, and they talk about Southeast Asia and many of the large cities in Southeast Asia are gonna have to either retreat from the coast. There's like retreats, there's, you know, like all sorts of uh, adaption is the word they use. If you look in climate reports, you see the word adaption. That means that like humans are gonna have to change like where we live, what we do based on the changes in the climate. And that's like, the really scary reality is that there's more discussion of adaption than there is mitigation. And that's actually like what got me forming Project Vesta and got the precursor of Project Vesta, which was called climate mitigation. It was a climate mitigation think tank that was going to evaluate all these carbon removal docs or removal mechanisms, methods. Methods. Right, right. Well, let's um, let, let's go there in a minute. But, but, but before we do that, I just want to follow up on, on something you just said there, which is that, you know, this, this wet bulb temperature, you know, that these regions of the world where where there'll be times of year where it will be just too hot and humid effectively for humans to survive, uh, unless, of course, they have the privilege of, of having And so I, I'm, I'm guessing that you mentioned Southeast Asia. I'm guessing that a lot of the regions that are going to be most badly affected are maybe not the countries that contributed most to this problem in the first place. Would that, would that be fair? Yeah, that's not only is that accurate, but also many of those places, they also don't have air conditioning. <laughs> and it's, it's really uh, a shame that the uh, emissions of, uh, you know, the countries that have led the industrial revolution and those things have the greatest uh, historical CO2 footprint. And, but the uh, problems of climate change are, are born on uh, disproportionately onto those who didn't create the climate change in the first place. And it's, it's really like when people say climate justice, that's what they mean is really like we may have a moral obligation to uh, contribute to CO2 removal in proportion to you know the, the historical liabilities of CO2 emissions that we built our societies on. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And so let's, yeah. let's now... Oh, uh, just, just, can I just give an example real quick? Feel free, please. Yeah. So, okay. So like historically, the U.S. is due... We, we've put out 400 billion tons to build our country. And so 
like a country like China, who's putting out a lot of emissions now, still hasn't reached the level of America's historic level. Like the whole EU, 28 countries, has done 350 billion tons historically. And so, um, you know, that's something when we look at, you know, who is uh, responsible, like India was only responsible with these numbers uh, for like 48 billion tons. So uh, they should, you know, like who should bear the brunt of removing the CO2? I wonder if like there's a ethical liability to remove them and maybe that takes the burden off of those countries or these countries pay to help the other countries through technology transfer and other things like that to pay our debt in a way. Right, right. And it, it very much, very much says that there's a, there's a clear correlation between the countries that have emitted the most CO2 in the past cumulatively and, you know, that those are the most developed countries. Those are the ones with the highest GDP per capita and overall who, who can also afford to, to do something about this. So let's let, let's switch to that and talk about that. So, so you know, you started climate to look at uh, look at ways to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. What what, what did you learn uh, in that process? Yeah, well, I learned uh, how few of these technologies are sufficiently advanced, and uh, you know, if you, if you analyze the method in the Paris Climate Agreement. It's, there's a method used in there called BECS, which is bioenergy, carbon and capture storage. Bioenergy means biomass, which means plants and trees. And what this proposes is this idea that you're going to grow agriculture, like biomass, farm it, cut it down, don't eat it, no, just cut it down, then burn it, and then pump it underground somewhere. And that is what the you know, so, wait a second. burn it first and then, and then pump the smoke underground. Can you, yeah. can you explain that? It sounds, that sounds confusing. It sounds confusing because it is illogical, especially in a world where we have less, uh, we have more people to feed and less, you know, arable land, like you're going to be competing for arable land. And then there's analysis of, of this process where, just growing the food and the change in um, land use from like old growth forest and all these things to new agriculture is enough on its own to raise the temperature like two degrees, one or two degrees. Mm. So it's basically so, so going back to go back to Bex. Just explain Bex to me one more time. So you you grow a bunch of you grow a bunch of crops and then you burn them. Yes, How and you take carbon dioxide. Well, because you're there's carbon you know accumulated in the plant as it's growing and then when you burn it, you like take off the CO2, put it into gas and then they pump it underground into a, uh, like a rock reservoir underground. And, and rock is the ultimate resting state of carbon, which I'd be happy to talk about. But essentially this plan is a non-starter from the beginning. And it's basically like just something they filled in and there's like one or two plants in the world. There was no plants really in the world when they put that in the Paris Agreement, but it is there at like $80 a ton average, I think. And it's the it's what they rely on and it has no real chance of working. And so that's kind of once I realized not only does the Paris Agreement require negative emissions to make the numbers work, which is the same thing as carbon dioxide removal, but in, they call it a negative emission, which you're going negative, right? It's because you need to balance out your positive emissions. So like in the Paris Agreement, countries really never go fully 
carbon negative or decarbonized. They always have to do negative emissions to offset some. Uh, and they go beyond what they're emitting to try to meet back this goal that we've overshot. Like that's the, literally the model says there's no way we're going to slow down in time. Just remove the CO2 at a, a level that's going to keep the temperature of the planet down. But we're going to like overshoot that target as the target and then remove that CO2 over the rest of the century. It is probably not the best plan, but they made it work in the models and it got the deal signed and the deal needs to be hardened and it really needs to be accelerated based on the, the latest data. But essentially it doesn't make sense how you're going to remove it like that. So I started climate mitigation to, to analyze all these various technologies and mechanisms through which you could remove CDR then find the projects that are doing it, highlight them and try to help get them moved up the technological readiness scale so that they could be deployed. And yeah. Got it. Okay, great. And I, of course, I know, you know, I know which one you ended up, you ended up picking and we'll go there. We'll go there in a second. Uh, what, what was kind of a, what was kind of a second, second place or some, something else that you, that you, discovered in this process that was another promising technology that you feel uh, that you feel could be useful other than the one that you end up picking which we'll talk about yeah so so really i guess like you know there's there's a so you can store co carbon is used in, in organisms carbon you know ends up in rock like 99.9 percent .9 of co2 on earth is in rock and so i like a lot of the solutions where for example you're pumping the co2 into the rock. Um, and that could be from direct air capture where you have these giant fans and there's uh, groups like Climeworks who are, you know, moving air through fans to then either turn it into a fuel or pump it underground. There's a couple different uh, mechanisms where you need to like pay for it. So you sell some, stick some away, put some into soda. Um, there is, you know, turning CO2 into products, which is a whole nother industry where you can like do some things with, uh, cement, uh, which is like 10% of the world's emission goes into making concrete. Um, and you can like potentially try to trap CO2 in there. There are, you know, other technologies that can generate energy more efficiently that can then power those other processes. A lot of them interplay with each other. And realistically, almost none of them are able to scale up. Growing trees is great, but like what happens when the climate shifts and the latitude or the that you're at it now that plant is now not able to grow in that environment. So, and trees take decades to really sequester their carbon. They, they, they start up as a sprout, then they put on over the 10 or 20 years, the majority of the carbon they're going to store, and then it slows down, but you've got to protect them from pests. So looking at permanence was really something I cared a lot about. Um, and even pumping the CO2 underground, it can actually like leak out. The good news is a lot of the tests they've been done and they came out good. So I, I, you know, there's trillions of tons available. So kind of like looking at the in state of rock, looking at that, there's this, you know, process, which I'll get into, but essentially, you know, there's these different uh, processes that you can choose. And I didn't feel that really any of them were, you know, on target to, to get us that historical, like trillion tons out, like, you know, the amount of energy to power the fans and direct air capture could be equivalent to like today's total energy usage. And so right, that kind of right. stuff made me like try to find a better process. And so, you know, depending on someone knows a project Vesta is, 
And what enhanced weathering is, it's like weathering is Earth's natural CO2 removal process. And that's actually like what piqued my interest is it goes back to those volcanoes putting out CO2. And the question is like, why does Earth look not like Mars, where Mars is like super hot and it's full of CO2 in the atmosphere? And sorry, Venus, not Mars. And Venus is because there's no water. It's because when rock uh, interacts with water, carbonates and silicate rocks interact with water, there's a, a generally slow reaction that takes place over thousands, millions, hundreds of millions of years that causes the CO2 to be store, stored as a different uh, molecule that then in rock, like, like the coast of Dover, if you think of those, those are coccolithophores. Those are um, carbonate rocks that they all they grew in the ocean and they died and then they were lifted by tectonic forces above the ground and so you're looking at stored co2 in that rock you can look at limestone it's all stored carbon and so it says huh if 99.9 percent .9 of co2 on earth is in rock and the amount in the atmosphere is like 0. 0.00000 like one like not even that why it makes sense to try to get this you know just 400 out of the uh, you know, million parts, just that little amount back into rock. And so that's kind of like right. where right. I started looking at how you speed up that normally slow process. Right, right. So there's this sort of, there's this very intuitively attractive idea that, that you know, that most of the carbon on the earth is stored in rock. And by the way, that's where we took out from as well, right? When we burned coal, when we burned oil, you know, essentially we took carbon out of the ground and we put it into the atmosphere. Uh, Correct. So yeah. Those, for anyone who doesn't know, like the, the coal deposits are old trees. Uh, for a long time, fungi, fungus is what breaks down, there's an enzyme in fungus that can break down the, like the, where the ligands that the wood is in. And uh, basically there was no ability to decompose wood. And so there was massive forests just with felled trees, just piling up and piling up. And eventually they either burned or they were put underground and compressed, you know, forest. And then that is coal, is old trees. So that is proof that trees are not a permanent store of CO2 really, because we then went down and got that CO2 and, and put it back in the atmosphere. Really Maybe there'll doing... be some future, some future civilization that's that's uh, doing doing it all over again after we're all gone. So let's talk about Project Vesta. Project Vesta is a way to capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and, and turn it into rock. How how does it work? Yeah. So what Project Vesta is doing is enhancing or speeding up what's known as the weathering process, and so they call it enhanced weathering. And what that process is is where when volcanoes put out the CO2, it mixes with water in the atmosphere and then falls as acid rain onto rocks. And this process has been going on for billions of years, transporting the materials from that reaction to the ocean where animals like corals put in their skeleton and other animals into their shells. And so the, normally you have to wait for the rock to be exposed and it has to break down. What we do is we like go to the source of the rock and we try to find ones nearby a coastline. And then we dig up the rock, place it onto the beach and then let the waves cause that reaction. And the collisions of the rocks into each other breaks the rock down a lot more quickly and also scratches the surface causing the reaction to speed up as well. And so then as that occurs, it turns into the shell material 
and we can take what was a million year process and break it down into a handful of years. And so that's kind of the concept of Project Vesta is just accelerating Earth's natural process of CO2 removal into rock. Great. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for that summary of Project Vesta. And I'm sure something that we'll be diving into uh, more in the future. So uh, I just want to thank you so much, uh, Eric, Eric Matzner, for joining on the podcast today. This was an episode of Going Negative, a podcast about carbon dioxide removal. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for listening to Going Negative, a podcast about solving climate change through carbon dioxide removal. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends. We hope you'll join us next time. Until then, take care.